0: Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you being empowered with knowledge so you can keep more of what you have. Our websites are clark.com and clarkdeals.com. Hey, you want a real deal? Our podcast. You can see our podcast, How to Get It, at clark.com slash podcast. And you have two versions of our podcast, one commercial-free, one with commercials. You want commercial-free. You got to pay a monthly fee. If you don't want to pay a fee, then just listen to commercials and you have our podcast available to you when it suits your schedule. So one thing that doesn't suit your schedule is FSA money. This has been a brutal year to figure out flexible spending account money. If you're not familiar with what this is, there's flexible spending accounts for dependent care and flexible spending accounts for medical expenses, unreimbursed medical. And the beauty of these is you're able to put in pre-tax dollars for dependent care or for medical expenses. And there's a cap on each. The problem this year has been that a lot of people have not gone to seek medical care that they would normally go to. And as a result, they have money unspent in their FSA. I want you to check to see if with your employer, that unspent money, that any of it is allowed to be carried over into the first part of 21. I kept hoping that the Congress would just allow a one-time thing to allow FSA money to roll forward for a year. They have not done so. So you're governed by the rules that exist in the employer plan you have, and it's use it or lose it. So it's no victory if you lose that money that did not get taxed up front. It's just a loss, regardless. So if you have no carry forward and you got to get the money used in the next two weeks. What I want you to look at is how you could use it in ways that would make sense in your life. There's a lot of medical stuff that you can use that money towards, um, things that you might not normally think of. Uh, As an example, let's say your blood pressure isn't behaving. Consumer Reports says one of the great ways to use it. And uh, I've talked about hearing aids. You can use it towards hearing aids, eyeglasses. Contact lenses, even things that are goofy like sunscreen. Uh, not that sunscreen's goofy, but being able to use flexible spending account money against that is a little bit weird. And then Congress did, for just this year, allow FSA money to be used towards over the counter things. So you need a new container of generic ibuprofen or generic acetaminophen. You can use your FSA money. You get brand name, you can't. No, just kidding. I just want you to be more efficient with your money and use the uh, generic version of things. Cold meds, over-the-counter, anything like that, you're free to use FSA money for in 2020 without any doctor note. Mark is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Mark. How's it going? How are you doing today? Great, thank you. I have a question. I have an app on
1: my phone for investing. Right now, I've only got about $180 invested. And I'm looking at starting uh, 401k with my company. And currently, I'm only able to invest about 4% of my income. I was wondering if I should keep investing in both or if I should just start investing in the uh, employer match 401k rolling over from the online app investing to a 401k will cost me about 75 dollars and so that's wait wait wait, wait
0: wait wait the app has a 75 dollar exit fee that's what i was told yes all right uh which app are you using go ahead and name it uh stash okay all right so that what we're talking about is that if you move your money from one brokerage to another, they charge you this junk fee of $75. A number of brokers do this. A number of others don't charge these fees. It is an abuse of the customer. I mean, with $180 in there, to charge you 75 of it as an exit fee is absolutely mind-blowing. and. You sound so calm about it, Mark. Is that just your personality that you're a calm guy? Well, I just—I don't see any reason to be upset about it. I mean, the way I look <laughs> Good at for it... for you!
1: <laughs> the, the way I look at it is, you know, I chose to put my money in there. I chose to use them. And if, you know, there's a fee that I missed when I set this up... That's my fault for not noticing that fee when I originally set this up.
0: Okay, fair enough. And you're going to live to be like 110 or 115 because you're not going to stress yourself out over things, are you? Uh, I try not to. So the answer is I would leave that $180 as stranded money in stash. Just leave it there. Okay. At some point, they may change their policy, they may be sold, they may merge with somebody. Who knows? And just start fresh with that 401k where you're working and put in the 4% of your pay that you can afford to right now. But in terms of affording it, is 4% what you have to put in to get the maximum match or do you need to do 6%?
1: I was told that they will match anything. Whatever I put into my 401k, my company will match and it will... It's not something where I have to invest for, you know, a a period of time before I can take it with me. Like as soon as my employers start matching, that money is mine.
0: All right. So so it's, uh, how much is the match? Like for every dollar you put in, what do they give you as a match?
1: I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think uh, it's up to five, five percent. They'll match at five percent. And then I think it's at seven percent from five to seven. They'll match like two and a half percent of
0: that. All right. We got to talk. All right. I need for you to step it up that 1%, at least get 5% of your pay going into that. Okay. So you pick up the dollar-for-dollar dollar match. Think about it. You're doubling your money instantly. Yeah. And then six months from now, please step it up to 6%. And well, six months. Well my,
1: after- well, my plan was from listening to you, I'm going to get a pay raise in February, and my plan from, from listening to what you have said on the radio was to take that pay raise and just – automatically you know use that whatever percentage that is and invest that
0: that sounds great i mean the goal is to get to where you're picking up every match dollar and in your case sounds like you get up to seven percent you're getting quite a handsome kick in from your employer and that would be what you want to be about the other thing i'd say to you is that if they have the option of a roth 401k do that instead of the traditional 401k If they only have traditional 401k, at least do that and throw that money in there, and you're going to really benefit from that over the long haul. Mary is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Mary.
2: Hi, Clark. It's not every day I get to talk to a national treasure.
0: Oh, well, you were sweet to say that. Thank you. And Joel really appreciates you saying that about him.
2: (laughs) It's the truth. So, we have a couple of pl- uh, cemetery plots that nobody in the family wants. Everybody's decided to get cremated when the time comes. And I've looked online. I see that there are plot broker services. People have them on Craigslist. Uh, there are ads in the local paper. And I'm wondering how to go about selling
0: these things. The cemetery plot market is broken, broken, broken. And <laughs> you stated up front why that. Uh, First factor is that cremations used to have virtually no market share in the United States, and on the West Coast now, it's above 70%. Wow. And nationwide, I'm trying to remember if it's 45% or something like that, and the number just keeps rising. And the cultural quotient, the number of people who still look at A funeral meaning service followed by a proper burial is, I mean, it's just vanishing. Oh, boy. So every family in America that's had cemetery plots for a long time is in the same circumstance you are. And (laughs) the reality is, generally, you cannot even give them away.
2: Oh, uh,
0: okay. So be very wary of any of these services i use that word uh loosely
2: okay. that
0: say hey pay us to list with us and we're the greatest at getting your cemetery plot sold because <sighs> i mean there are there are sites charging upwards of five hundred dollars to list a cemetery plot for sale like what kind of money are you saying people wanting
2: uh, oh yeah they they want a couple of thousand dollars which what? i think is yeah well it's in southern it's in southern california and the other thing is the cemetery itself to transfer the deed or whatever it is that's about four hundred dollars so i think you're right we're just not going to be able to get rid of these things
0: yeah i th- i think they are as close to in this era unsellable as could be now eventually <laughs> with how scarce land is in southern california Right. You may eventually get to a point where there's just not enough cemetery plots for the small percent of people who want to be buried. Ah. And there may come a time where cemetery plots will have market value. But particularly okay. with family plots, where families may have bought, you know, 12, 20 spots, whatever, right. and nobody wants them. I know in my family <laughs> that the two. Um, sides of my family, you know, the two sets of grandparents. Right. There are all these plots that nobody wants over what's now <laughs> four generations. It's like, forget it. Yes.
2: Okay. All right. Well, then I will proceed from there. And uh, I sure appreciate your input. It, it gives me a lot to go on.
0: And if you do list, like, one thing people are doing as a fallback is they will list cemetery plots on Craigslist. Right. The people that will call you will tend to be from these expensive listing services. Who will oh, okay. say, "Oh, you know, at Craigslist thing, it's never going to get it done for you." But let me tell you, <laughs> we're just great at this. And if you pay us the five hundred or a thousand dollars or whatever, <laughs> we get them sold. The only thing they get sold True. is the five hundred or thousand bucks they take from you.
2: Okay, boy, got it. All right. I'm forewarned. Thank you so much,
0: Clark. All right. Best to you. And this goes to the core of something that I have recommended. And with the way people tend to migrate around the country and all that, I think about how scattered my family is. There's plenty of time to get a cemetery plot when the time comes. But buying one in advance or buying a big family plot is a disaster for your wallet Because over time, people's wants and desires and locations and circumstances will change. And it's not a good thing to buy thinking you're providing a benefit to your family through the generations. You're just creating a problem for your family through the generations.
3: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the Launch Your Online Shop stage, all the way to the We Just Hit a Million Orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's
0: shopify.com
3: slash specialoffer.
0: Emmett is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Emmett. How you doing, Clark? Great, What's thank fun, you Emmett Thanks for everything you do for us Well thank you and I am so excited about your question Because no one's asked me this in probably 7 or 8 months
3: Alright, well here we go <laughs> What's this Looking scoop? at buying a new home, um, building a new home actually And um, builder is just starting out So I was wondering, I always thought you know if you can get in on the ground level You can get the best price But not sure, I want to rent it by you Is it better to... Do it up front, somewhere in the middle, or do you wait until they're about ready to close out to get the best uh, deal on the home?
0: Okay, so you gave me three choices there. I actually have to add a fourth one that, believe it or not, sure. the best protection for your wallet is not buying in a brand new development. Because when a development's brand new, you don't know how it's going to pan out. You don't know if the economy is going to take a sudden unexpected turn And then there will be um, a lot of scarred, unfinished lots or partially built houses around you that someone else, an unknown, could come in later and say, well, I'm picking up these lots cheap. I'm going to build much lower price point homes. And then your wallet is dead when that happens. I, Hmm. I really like it for you to look at homes that are, if you like a new home, why not look at one that's nearly new? where the neighborhood's built out, you have a real sense about how that neighborhood's doing, and you pay less per square foot for a home that is used than you do for a brand-new construction.
3: Okay. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. The only thing is, as far as getting the home built the way you want it built, you know, you have to go back in and retrofit everything. But, but you know,
0: There's less of that than you might imagine. Uh, How many places have you lived at in your life?
3: Houses, uh, five apartments, tons.
0: So when when you move into a house, even if it's not exactly what you wanted or exactly how you like, we adjust to it and we live in it in a way that's good and comfortable for us. Unless a house is just absolutely, just totally ugly, or has a stupid floor plan, or whatever. (laughs) I mean, you know, you can find something that will be... Pretty close to what you want. Right. And a house becomes your home that you build your life in once you're in it. And, you know, there's old expression, um, home is where the heart is. And so that's really true. So if it's about dollars and cents, buying early or middle in a new development... Or even late is not going to get you when you're buying new the value for each dollar that you're going to get buying used. So let somebody else, it's almost, it's not as bad as with a car, but let somebody else pay for that new home thing and you get the benefit of them having done that when you're the second or third buyer.
4: Families have a lot going on.
0: It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our websites are clark.com and clarkdeals.com. I talk so much about one of my key principles, living on less than what you make, which opens up all kinds of possibilities for you about what you end up doing with your money in your life. And the thing is about saving for your future is that the purpose of saving for your future is to create freedom in that future, to give you control, more control. And I read recently a story in Barron's Magazine about where we fall in terms of saving for our future. And there are those among us who are not in a position typically to be able to save for retirement because you're working part-time, you're working irregularly, you don't make a lot of money at your job, your job history has had instability to it, and so this is really a bridge too far in many cases for you, and it means that you're going to have a A more difficult struggle to save for retirement so what I'm talking about here are people who are in a position where you have stability in the workplace you make a decent salary but not necessarily a large one the question is how are you doing on your quest and based on the research what became really clear was people who prepare, who have a plan, and this should not be a shock to anybody, are the ones who are going to end up in the best position being able to live a comfortable retirement. And I know what I'm saying sounds so basic, but the reality is most people don't actually take the time to figure out how much money they're going to need to have a comfortable retirement at a point you want to and how much of your pay you're going to need to save. And, you know, I talk about how starting early is great and all that, but whenever you start is when you start. But the key is to think through what the goal is. When is it you'd like to bag work? What age is that and how much money are you going to need at that age to be able to live with the comfort that you would like to have so it's actually not as hard as you may think to set that target date what is that age that you'd like to uh, go do whatever you'd like to do even if at that point you decide you want to work part-time because you'd be bored otherwise or whatever but that financially you've set yourself up in that place that being prepared having a plan is going to be core and key to what kind of financial security you're going to have so come up with that age and then follow this rule And there's disagreement among financial types what number, but I'll tell you, I still think there's real value in the 4% rule that you figure out what you're going to need to live each month if the point at which you're going to retire is when you already have Social Security. You can guesstimate what that would provide you each month and know that the money you will have saved by the time you hit that date You can expect reasonably to spend 4% of that each year on living costs. You can divide that, whatever that 4% is, by 12, and you got that plus Social Security. If you have any kind of employer-provided pension that you're anticipating, you'll know whether or not you're on target on goal. Where the money should be saved to reach that goal is first in... retirement plan at work a 401k typically and my preference for most income earners is in a Roth 401k the second thing is a Roth IRA so be realistic see what you'd have to save every month and set about doing it Elizabeth is with us on the Clark Howard show and Elizabeth I've heard stories about extended warranties and extended service contracts on like everything except what you're gonna tell me was pitched to you how are you
3: i'm doing just fine thank you for having me on sure um, yes i recently went to my dentist and I got a quote i've got a broke crown Ooh, and so it's how much pain need to be are you in? Uh, it's no pain it's just you know, it's breaking apart. Ooh. So I'm looking in no pain, but I'm going to need to get it replaced here soon. So the the quote that I got was for the amount for the crown, um, and then there was crown insurance.
0: Was crown like, insurance. This? I have never, uh-huh. I mean, I've been doing this since 1987, <laughs> and I have never heard of crown insurance. I thought the most out there one before was when I was offered and heavily pressured to buy tennis shoe insurance, but now we're oh, wow. talking about crown insurance. Wow!
3: And, and and what it was explained to me was it covers the crown in case it breaks for five years. So it's like I'm buying insurance to cover the crown's workmanship from the lab. Okay. And and I was like, do I really need this? I mean,
0: <laughs> I mean, this is this is something I'm kind of befuddled because a dentist should have enough confidence in his or her work that you wouldn't have to insure their work. So, how much is the crown, and then how much is the add-on insurance?
3: The crown is twelve hundred, and the insurance is one hundred and fifty
0: okay that's a lot of money for for the insurance because yeah it's I, like 30 I, it comes out to 30 bucks a year for insurance right and i've had i unfortunately have been royalty for a long time in my mouth i've had a number of crowns uh, put in and so i have had a crown break before but as a general rule they hang for a long time mm-hmm. so, if so, they're put in right they do <laughs> So, so if you have a problem, often it's going to be quick. And so I would not spend the 150
3: Yeah, I'm, I was thinking the same, but I, I just never heard of that. And I was like, is this like the new deal? Because I've well, never heard of it before. Well,
0: dentistry is in the free market, and there's a lot of experimentation that goes on. And uh, is this a dentist you have a lot of confidence in? He
3: does that great work.
0: Now, I, so I if he does great work, he... then I think mm-hmm. you tell him, you know, I think your work is so excellent, I'm not worried about having insurance on your work, because I know you're <laughs> going to do a good job.
3: <laughs> and he really does do a great job. I have to, you know, my hat's
0: up, I love the guy. Well, so he would have to be talking down his own skill to convince you, yeah, I do such a bad job, you should insure my work, uh-uh. That's funny. So it doesn't mean that one won't break again, but it's not that often. Mahul is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi. Hey, Clark. How are you doing? Great. I hope you're having a wonderful one.
5: Yes, sir. I do. A long time listener. I love you. So appreciate you taking my call, though. Certainly. I have questions about the auto insurance policy for teens. Yeah. Oh.
0: <laughs> don't Would do I... it oh my
5: <laughs> convince God, your it's...
0: teen they don't want to drive for years <laughs> do you know um, i, wish, the I per- wish i could the percent of 18 year olds who don't have a driver's license now is huge i mean as more and more teenagers don't have the same interest in driving that maybe we did growing up that's and correct the other factor is the auto insurance thing is out of control for teen drivers.
5: Absolutely, and that's that's what my question to you is. I just added my son to our policy via insurance agent, and my premium almost doubled.
0: How many extra thousands a year?
5: Almost uh, $1,500 a year.
0: Okay, that's actually very cheap compared to what I've been hearing. Okay. Yeah, my so, daughter my daughter added, I think it was 4,000 approximately to our insurance.
5: Yeah, so so originally I was paying is around like 1500 and now I'm paying around 3100.
0: Okay. So in the world of teen drivers, you're getting off cheap.
5: Okay. So, because I'm planning to add my daughter as well sometime in April and I'm kind of pulling my hair to see, oh my god. I'm going to have another increase of like another fifteen hundred dollar or so. Uh,
0: I don't know. It? It'll depend on your insurer if they, if with a second teen driver, there's any cut you get, or if they okay. add the same level of increase on for the second teen driver. You sure they both really want to drive? This is a terrible thing. They both <laughs> want to drive.
5: I cannot hold them up Clark, to test. Uh, trust me, I cannot hold them
0: up. <laughs> so I have a son who is learning to be an airline pilot, is a teenager. He's learning okay. to fly, and he'll have his flying license probably right about his sixteenth birthday, but he doesn't mm-hmm. really have any interest in driving.
5: Of course, he's going to fly Then he don't need to drive.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. He says fly. He said to me when we were in really bad traffic the other day and people were driving really crazy, he said, Dad, flying is so much easier than driving. I don't know why I'd want to drive. So I'm uh, looking me, here. Uh, Producer Joel has for us how much you add in different states for a teen driver. And uh-huh. some of them it's around uh, 3800 extra for a teen driver. And others it's as little as little is the 1,600 you talked about, but most of them are more than that. I mean, you know, in the thousands. So you're okay. actually getting ripped off at a discount.
5: Okay. That's, that's a good problem to have. Though.
0: Right, right. So <laughs> right. I'm um, more. one other thing is that uh, you uh-huh. should talk to your agent and see if there are techniques that work. Like if you buy an old beat-up car, is a car Mm -hmm. that uh, your teens drive, is that cheaper than just adding them as household drivers in your home? Because it depends per state and per insurer if it's cheaper to have a designated vehicle that you only have to buy liability on for a teen to drive, or is it better to add them as a household driver of the vehicles you already have? And so there's no automatic pattern to that. And you just got to okay. see what, how that does play.
5: Great. Okay. Thanks. Thanks a lot for your advice, Clark. I really do
0: appreciate it. And are you going to do some of the <clears throat> instructing and how to drive?
5: No, they already have came through the, all the training and all the stuff. So now they are almost like the L2 permit here in North Carolina. Okay. So when we take the L2 permit, we have to produce uh, proof of insurance before they get the L2 permit. Got it. Uh, and and once after they are 18, they will get the full license. Uh, right now, they are they both are on a 17. So I think I had to pass one year. But whenever they go to the full license, I think I have to still continue paying this much amount in auto insurance. That's what people are telling me.
0: No fun at all. Now my middle child says that I was the worst parent ever in the vehicle when she was learning to drive. My oldest child, though, says I was a good teacher. So it just depends on the dynamic between parent and child. And they, of course, both took driver training. My oldest burst into tears several times at driver training.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
0: Stephanie is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Stephanie. How are you doing? Hi, Clark. I'm good. How are you? Great. Congratulations to you. You're buying your first home. Yes, that's correct. Thank you so much. You nervous or excited or both? A big combination of both. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, how can I be of service to you? Because this is a very exciting time in your life.
5: Yeah, it is a very exciting time, and so um, we purchased a new construction home, and it's a townhome style. Um, it's set to be ready in probably July or August, and so we're wondering what type of mortgage we should get. And we've heard of, you know, the ten one arm, um, the thirty year fixed, and we're wondering your advice because. Um, This will be our first home purchase, and we don't think that we'll stay in it forever for the long term, but we do plan to sell it eventually down the road. Um, We're wondering what kind of mortgage do you think we should get?
0: So if your goal is that you're thinking this townhouse is where you're going to live for, let's say, five, seven years right in there, Mm -hmm. the smart money says that you take the 10-1 arm or 7-1 arm where you fix the rate for seven or ten years. But mm-hmm. I would say today, you ignore the smart money and go with a straight 30-year fixed loan. And the reason I would say that is the interest rate spread between a 30-year fixed and a 10-1 arm or a 7-1 arm is so small right now, much smaller than it has been historically, that mm-hmm. there's no reason for you to take on the risk. If your life changes, you end up staying in that townhouse longer than you expected. The real estate market turns in a way that even when you want to get out, you can't, and you end up having to have it as a rental property. You end up staying involuntarily longer than you thought. So we're in a market right now where the interest rates, and maybe they won't be as cheap when you lock in, but right Mm -hmm. now you're only saving somewhere right around a quarter point going with one of the ARM products, maybe three-eighths of an interest point. Mm -hmm. That's just not enough difference to make it worth giving up the flexibility that you get with that 30-year fixed.
5: Yeah, that makes sense. And how about locking in the rate? When do you think we should go ahead and do that?
0: Well, you know, with construction, when they tell you something's going to be ready is not always when it's going to be ready. Right. So you have to wait longer than you might like to lock okay. in the rate because you don't want to lock in and have your lock-in expire. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So
0: when it when it feels really confident that they're going to be done by a set date, that's when okay. if you're close enough that you can do a lock in, that's when you lock in. But not till it's okay. like really, really clear, that they tell you it's going to be um, August 15th, let's say, that you're comfortable it's going to happen within a week or two of that, that's when you go ahead and lock in because builders are notorious for not finishing on time. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show.